Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring Roots Music's great artists. Please do rate and subscribe. It makes a huge difference and let all your friends know to listen. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us and mostly just one banjo. That's me. I found it very curious that Bela Fleck had an album called Imposter, and he speaks about feeling like an imposter when he left bluegrass music and went to play in other genres such as jazz and Latin and classical music. And I, as a four-string Irish banjo player, uh, suffered very much with imposter syndrome when it came to my opportunity to speak to Bela Fleck about his world, about his music, uh, and everything that goes into that. I ended up really enjoying the conversation. Bela is incredibly affable, uh, kind, uh, funny, and very, very easygoing. Of course, I had built it up in my head that it was going to be this huge undertaking on my part to talk to the god of banjo. But as it turns out, He's incredibly easy to chat to, has an awful lot to say, despite having a very quiet on-stage persona. I loved it, loved everything he had to say, and I hope you enjoy it too. Listen to one of my all-time favorite albums, uh, Telluride Sessions, Strength in Numbers. Oh, yeah. It was one of the first bluegrass albums I ever listened to, and it was recommended by one of your former students, Leon Hunt. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, I remember Leon. Yeah, I wouldn't even call that a bluegrass record unless that extended kind of version of bluegrass that I think it was kind of the beginning of a, a further step from the original bluegrass um you know concept but kind of a, a i think a special one you know a, a real neat bunch of guys with a different way of going about it yeah but that was the thing i it was one it was the first album in the bluegrass world that i listened to and mm-hmm. then that you know and then to find out that it was very much what new new grass or what's a genre these days right yeah, I think it was kind of a step into like a chamber grass idea, you know, where, where things were much more orchestrated. And we also didn't have guitar, except on, I think, one, well, two tracks. Um, and um, that gave a lot of space in the middle of the music uh, for all the parts to be really clearly heard. Because in bluegrass, there's a lot of duplication, especially when people are playing, you know, a more conventional kind of bluegrass. So like, you're strumming the guitar, you're chopping the mandolin playing the dobro, you're playing the banjo, you're playing the fiddle. Those are all pretty much in the same range. And then you've got the bass, and often the bass is barely audible on a lot of bluegrass records, old ones. So the, th- the thing that worked about it live when you heard Flatt and Scruggs and Bill Monroe and people like that is they went or they played around one mic. So 
um, you know, you didn't, uh, they self-mixed. So it got, you know, it was mandolin solo, he'd step forward and that mandolin would be just big and powerful. And then the other guys would be around it. And the sound kind of worked that way. But as the years went on, everybody, you know, tried to upgrade the sound of bluegrass as they needed to. And, and they'd started using single mics on every instrument and everybody just stood there. And now you needed a sound man to mix it. And now everything was big and rich and fat, which each guy loved. But what it all turned into is kind of a big sonic mess where everything was just so fat, you couldn't hear anything. And so it's, it's interesting how the music was evolved on a microphone. It's not like, for instance, Irish music, which evolves, you know, in, in, in playing situations with lots of people playing. It's, it's, this, was, this was created for performance. Mm. You know, it's not like a pub music uh, or folk music. It's a, it's a very refined kind of music that was, you know, really was created to be played on mics, on one mic. Yeah, well, we, we've seen yeah. the Punch Brothers playing on one mic. And it was, we, we imagine that there's a lot of rehearsal that goes into getting that spacing just right so that everything is voiced and heard properly. Yeah. Well, I think pretty soon you figure it out. If you just do a few shows and you listen to a few back, you realize, okay, the banjo player needs to stand back here. You know, the mandolin's quieter. It needs to be about here. You need to place the mic this high to get enough of the vocals and the instruments. And, you know, you get better at it. Um, and, uh, of course, a, you know, a band like Flat and Scruggs did it every day. So it was no problem. They heard the radio shows back. They heard shows back and they knew what they needed to do and just became very obvious and very simple. Another band that does that really well is Del McCoury, uh, the Del McCoury band. They, they, you know, they more typically now will use maybe, you know, three or four mics, but it's not like instrument mic, vocal mic on each guy. And, and they move around the stage and they, there are hot mics that you go to when you want to play your strong solos, you know. The other thing bluegrass lost when they went through that period is it lost all of the um, uh, choreography because it was so much fun to watch Flat and Scruggs on stage r running in and out of each other. You know, the dobro player squeezing in just in time for the solo, Earl stepping in just in time to kick it, but everyone's stepping back out of the way. And it becomes very natural, very fast once you do a few shows that way. And instead they're all standing statically in position spread out across the stage now is that it right exactly now with punch brothers i remember you know they had gone through different periods where they had mics on every instrument and pickups on every instrument and i remember when i would watch them perform and they had all the pickups and the mics and everything they all spent all their time looking at the monitor guy i need this i need this i need this and they were none of them looked happy they all looked miserable and then when they started playing on the one mic everybody was just having a grand time again so i mean it wasn't necessarily easier for the audience because sometimes it would be super quiet like for me I, I i needed to be up a certain level to hear it. you know just i want to hear the details so it's nice if you can figure out how to do all of that and also you know get volume and that will work in some situations and in other situations it won't work you know so you just have to be ready for both you gave me a huge amount of um solace i think or hope the last time we met at wintergrass because I, I was really struggling with the sound of the banjo through a pickup and then wearing in-ears and, and not having any monitors on stage and right i'd asked you about it <laughs> and you said um yeah i came off stage sometimes thinking i absolutely hate this why have i the worst sound in the entire auditorium is me <laughs> right i'm hearing the worst thing everyone else is hearing something good yeah so yeah. what did you figure out did you figure anything out i had to crack uh, crank out one ear i, I had to have some yeah. ambient sound because the banjo through 
pickup in, in, in ears is just terrible. Well, you know, you, if you're all in, in ears anyway, maybe you could have a mic on your banjo and hear, hear something nice. You know? I have brought up many different manifestations of possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> and being the, being the absolute tech Luddite in the band, uh, um, I have to ask in a particular way. <laughs> yeah <laughs> to be heard <laughs> well the problem is you know if you're playing gigs that are you know like rock clubs and things like that which i know you guys do uh, often the pa is right on the stage and it's not going to do as well with a microphone that close but if uh if when you're playing nicer theaters i've gotten away with using mics in ears um and and been loud you know re, you know but had the band be cranking loud and sound really really acoustic and what i was hearing in my ears was blowing me away i loved it mm. but you know, when you're in nice halls, that works better than rock clubs. Yeah. But, yeah. Bill, I want to zoom right back to the very start. And um, I've always uh, kind of had a quimsical connection to you through an old job that I used to do, where uh, before I got sense and decided to make a full-time living from playing the banjo, uh, discovered that it was possible and then started to do it. I used to be a, a health inspector. <laughs> I was really? the most unlikely health inspector on planet Earth. But uh, and I used to look after this donut stall in Galway City that was run <laughs> by your first cousin, Danny. That's right. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you grew up with, with Danny in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Up, uptown New York City, West Side. Yeah. And then and then he kind of disappeared one day and um, and. I don't know where all he went before he ended up in Galway, but I know he worked on the fishing boats um, and uh, had a lot of adventures before sort of just sort of finding his place in, in that community there in Connemara. Mm. Yeah, he, lo he loves it in Galway. He's, I mean, Galway is a very eclectic, artistic city, so he definitely fits in. But he, he found out that I played banjo and then literally every time I would turn up at the at the uh, the donut stall to make sure he was you know washing his hands properly kind of thing and he was like hey man have you seen Bela recently you know <laughs> <laughs> oh that's nice to hear yeah yeah he's we get guy. out of touch sometimes for way too long but i i uh i love him a lot he was my little you know running around naked uh you know little cousin yeah so what were those early days like and and where did banjo uh first appear for you well, uh, let's see. Our, um, our grandparents lived in Queens, and um, I lived in in Manhattan. My mother was uh, working in the school systems as a like a kindergarten or a, I think it was kindergarten teacher, maybe pre K, and um, and she had divorced, um, and so it was just my mother and me and my brother living in this little apartment in Manhattan. But we would go to my grandparents' house in Queens, um, you know, for visits and stuff, and for. Sundays or whatever. And one day they let us watch the television in, in my grandparents' room, which was a big deal. Very rare by ourselves, me and Louie, my big brother. And uh, and on comes the Beverly Hillbillies. And it's Earl Scruggs playing the banjo. And I have to say, my mind was blown. I mean, I just was like, wow, that sounds so amazing. And so after the thing played, I, I said to my brother, Louie, I said, hey, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And he said, what? You know, that that sound and he was like i don't know i said well it'll come back on at the end we were old enough to know that that came back for a moment at the end of you know commercials uh, at the end of the show um it, the, as it went to the next show they, they would play a little theme music underneath the uh, credits 
and, uh, and so it came back. And I said, there it is. There's that sound. That's it. And he, I said, isn't that incredible? And he said, I, I don't know. I guess so. And it sort of highlights for me how some people just hear the banjo and it's like a something clicking on for them. And it, it was that way for me. And for other people, it is uh, not, not that at all or even offensive. <laughs> um, so, uh, but for me, that and I've talked to so many people, you know, that um, heard Earl Scruggs. Usually it's Earl Scruggs who turns on, uh, the, the, who clicks the, the button on for, for people who are going to be three-finger players. And it's a profound experience. And there's a lot of stories of people driving and hearing it come over the radio and having to pull over the car. And when the car, you know, when the, when the banjo stops, they they go looking for a banjo. You know, they just ha- they have to know what that is. And so I, I don't know why it had such a profound uh, impact, but Earl is one of those guys who has done that to thousands and thousands of people and turned them into banjo players almost instantly, or at least banjo people. And you don't have to actually become a banjo player. You could, but from then on, you you love and are aware of and are fascinated. Um, some people become banjo players, and some people just have that same experience that aren't banjo lovers. Yeah. Banjo people, I call them (laughs) banjo people. They're banjo people. They're part of the family. You know, they care about it for some indefinable reason. But there was obviously something intangible about what Earl Scruggs was doing. That was more than just the music. It's really deep. Um, And, and of course that's a very silly song, but I encourage anybody who's listening to this to go listen to the original theme from the movie not the Earl Scruggs remake, but the original theme from, sorry, the television show. It was a half-hour television show called The Beverly Hillbillies. And li- just listen to the banjo. Just tune into the sound of the banjo and don't, don't worry about the lyrics or anything. That, But also the band sound that the Flat and Scruggs had. And what you hear in that banjo, I always call that like a high-tech primitive sound because it's very earthy. Um, and you, uh, when you first hear that kind of music, you think, wow, that's so precise. It's almost like a computer playing. But then after years and years of listening to so many things and coming back to it, you realize, no, it's not like a computer. It's, it's like, you know, skin and, and, and bone and blood and earth, and, uh, but combined with this technical facility. And so I always call it a high-tech primitive sound because for me, Earl Scruggs is both. Um, there's something very African about it. It goes back to the origins uh, and funky. It's not a computer playing every note like a like a machine, but that's the impression you get at first listen. And some banjo players who actually, I think, kind of did a poor job of imitating Earl uh, thought that that's what he was doing and started playing that way. But Earl Scruggs left lots of sort of curious spaces in it. He played with a lot of inflection. He always played the melody whenever it was possible. He wasn't like a... Uh, uh, a flash player, although I mean, at the time nobody could play what he could play, and it was it was flashy and surprising. But he, he was uh, he was very focused on playing the melody of things. And so you're 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 living on an island off the east coast of America, um, quite away from Kentucky and you know the home of so-called bluegrass. Did you have an awareness of American folk music? And, you know, living in New York and in Manhattan, did you have to go and seek it out? Yeah, I wasn't really interested in folk music that much, uh, or especially country music. I didn't like or see or have any affinity for. I thought it was dumb, you know. Um, and um, But the banjo was something else. And the other instruments were cool enough, especially in Flatten Scruggs' band, you know. But um, no, I mean, it was the banjo itself I was interested in. And... Uh, 
in fact, people would laugh at me when I played the banjo and when I brought the banjo around New York. But the truth was, <clears throat> you know, in my in my peer group, people would laugh at me, kids my age, because nobody of their age was playing. But the truth was, there was a very big New York folk boom, you know, um, that came partly after the Dueling Banjos movie. Um, and but but before that, you know, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, all all this great folk history that happened in New York City. So on some periphery level, I was aware of that. But again, I wasn't that interested in that, although I liked it. It wasn't that um, didn't have that pull that hearing Earl Scruggs play the banjo did. Um, so there was no. I still really don't. I can't really explain it. And part of it is. Um, why I think I do so many things on the banjo that don't fit the tradition is because I don't really feel like I have a right to the tradition. I don't come from there. I'm not from a cabin home on the hill. So I have to play the banjo in a way that um, uh, reflects where I'm from. And where I grew up, you know, I was listening to, to jazz. I was listening to, you know, the Beatles. I was listening to uh, classical music. And, uh, you know, when I wanted to learn the banjo, everybody pointed me towards bluegrass. And I, you know, I'd learn it. But then I started finding out about the people who were on the edges of bluegrass, like Tony Trishka, for instance, who um, who's the, one of the most modern guys ever to pick up the banjo, but he also had a very primitive feel at the same time as being being very unusually modern. Um, and he uh, he he became my next hero. And I kind of forgot about Earl Scruggs at that point. And all I wanted to do was play this new stuff. But this was after I'd been playing for a couple of years. I hadn't gotten my banjo till I was actually fifteen. Even though I heard the banjo when I was a little kid, I always wanted one, but I never really told anybody. So I got a guitar and I played, you know, some folk songs on that, some Beatles songs, and was learning some of my blues scales from a from a rock guitar player with with some disinterest, you know. But then when um, my grandfather got me a banjo because he knew I liked a guitar, he said, "Oh, I got found this at a garage sale," and I came up to see him the day before I started high school, and he said, "I got this uh, thing for you. Maybe you or your brother would like it." And I was like, "Oh." There it is, you know, someone put one in my hands. I never thought anybody could actually play the thing. It was just so impossible what I was hearing, you know. So, and then on the train home from my grandparents' house, which at that point they lived in upstate New York, uh, Westchester, um, a guy tuned the banjo up for me and handed it back to me. And, and you know, and I, all of a sudden I had an in tune banjo and like a brief lesson. And then I got the, the Pete Seeger book. And then I just started taking lessons from people that were around, mostly in the folk world at first and then gradually into the bluegrass world. And then finally I got with Tony Trishka. Um, so by the time I was, uh, coming out of high school, um, after playing for three years, I could sound pretty much like Tony Trishka. Uh, people would, uh, we'd be at a party jamming and people would come up and say, I couldn't tell, you know, which one was who, you know, that's how intently I was pursuing his, his style of playing. And at one moment, it came to me, I was like, oh, no, you know, I just realized there is a Tony Trishka, and I'm just imitating him, and he's not imitating anybody. And at that point, I had to start distance, distancing myself from his playing, uh, which was very hard to do because I loved it so much. I mean, I would have been happy to just keep playing like him, but I started digging and looking for the areas maybe that he wasn't as specialized in that I could go work on, more of the legit jazz playing and, and different kinds of techniques. Um and then I'd start joining bluegrass bands. And it, a couple of years later, maybe three years later, after being in Boston performing after high school in a band called Tasty Licks, uh, I moved to Kentucky. And that's when I got into Earl Scruggs again, um, trying to really not be a Yankee banjo player, a New York banjo player. I wanted to be I wanted to fit in everywhere in the banjo scene. I was thinking of it as a career at this point, And I wanted I didn't want to be, you know, 
Uh, there was a lot of ostracization. What's that word? Ostracization. Ostracizing going on with, with uh, the northern banjo players versus the southern people and sort of put uh, putting down the northerners. I didn't want to be put down. I wanted to fit in. So I thought the way to do that is to really, really learn the music. So I moved to Kentucky to the town where J.D. Crow lived, and I got every Earl Scruggs live show I could, and I just started learning everything about that music. And it didn't make me into a Scruggs player. Um, made me much better at that, but it didn't make me into one of those guys. But at least it, it did a lot of great things to my playing uh, and improved my, my time, my tone, sense of taste. You know, so many things about playing that you learn from learning any one style really well. And it gave me, so all of a sudden I was a Yankee player who had a Southern sound or, or time sense. And I could play in a band with, you know, I could jump in for J.D. Crow and make make it happen the way it was supposed to, even though I wasn't him or never would be he or Earl. And then in the later years, um, sticking with Earl Scruggs for a moment, um, I ended up moving where I live right now, um, just about two miles from Earl's house. And I didn't get to know him till he was quite old, but then we got to be very good friends. And I used to go see him whenever I came home off the road and, and, and sit and play with him. And uh, that was an incredible ending to the to the story. In fact, uh, when I wrote a banjo concerto and performed it in Nashville, and he came to see it, I invited him to it, and and it was a big concert hall, and I I got everybody to stand up for him and give him a big applause, you know, and, and it was a long three minute round of applause for Earl Scruggs with everybody at their feet, and then uh, that was the last concert he ever went to, so it was sort of some weird closure about that but we had a very close relationship in the last years. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, when it became a full-time career for you, was that a natural transition or was it a decision that you had to make? And was there anything else on your horizon? Yeah, I was very fortunate um, that my mother and my stepfather had a mistake occur and got pregnant <laughs> when I was in a senior in high school. And, and now imagine this, my stepfather was... Uh, the supervisor of, of guidance of the school systems of Brooklyn. My mother is a school teacher. Now here I am in high school, they have a kid and they don't even notice that I haven't applied to any colleges. <laughs> I just snuck it by them because I was busy playing. And, uh, and at, at a certain point, uh, my mom said now about college. And I said, mom, it's too late. It's already May. I mean, it's not, I, I'm not, you know, and it was like, well, city college or something. I was like, uh, I don't think it's it's going to have to be next year, Mom. You know, <laughs> and so that gave me the, the little window to, to to just jump out there and see if I could possibly make it. You know, make a living. Um, so, um, and luckily, Tony Trishka had played on a record for a guy up in Boston named Jack Toddle, and Jack had a band and was looking for a replacement banjo player. And Tony didn't want to do the job; he didn't want to move to Boston. So he said, "Hey, I've got this young kid." You know. Um, a student who might be good. So I went up to Boston. I took the train up there and and uh, auditioned with Jack and got the job and moved to Boston. You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse in conversation with Bela Fleck. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I could now start talking, and in an hour's time, I wouldn't have covered a yeah. fraction of your yeah. ca- your career. Um, Maybe we're doing too much detail about the beginning, but um, no, no, but the short all. story is well, the short story is I moved to Boston, and I got in a band, and then I moved to Kentucky in another band, and then I joined Newgrass Revival, moved to Nashville uh, in 1981, and I've been I've been here ever since. And was Newgrass Revival was that a, was that a huge deal for you? That was a huge deal. That was me getting into the major leagues. Uh, I mean, I was in good bands. Uh, the, there's not, you know, there was great things to learn from every band I was in, but um, Newgrass was a whole other story. Not only were we, uh, was Sam Bush, one of my musical heroes at the time, and still, and now, you know, now a great friend, but uh, and John Cowan were in the band. Pat Flynn, they were all absolutely at the top of their game, the top level musicians you could ever play with. And they knew a lot about music that I didn't know about. They were into blues and rock and pop and all those things that I wasn't, I was focused on jazz and bluegrass at that point. And not only that, um, Newgrass was very highly established. So all of a sudden I was now playing the headlining slot on all the major festivals that, that would have them. Because of course there was still that dichotomy between the modern and, and the traditional and the traditionalists, uh, a lot of them hated Newgrass revival. Um, Although by the time uh, the band broke up, we had become one of the standard bearers for bluegrass, ironically. Things changed. Mm. They went from being, you know, reviled and put on at midnight, you know, at, uh, at the festival to 40 people um, to, to, to headlining. And um, I mean, some of it had to do with me and Pat joining the band and it was a new band, but um, it was also a big change had happened you know we were the few one of the few bands with bluegrass instrumentation that ever got on tv and we got on tv regularly on country music television and so for the bluegrass community we we, we became you know kind of a well you know we were we were the top cats that played that circuit mm. um so uh and it was explosive it was an explosive band and the records don't tell the story you really had to be at a show cuz we were amplified we were one of the first bands that amplified the instruments and you could really crank it up and uh, and we were intense. Every note was intense. There was no gentle moments. You know, even a slow song would be, like it was a song called Good Woman's Love, which is kind of pretty, I was a rover, da, da, da. But it was, our version was, I was a rover, over land and on sea, bap. You know, every crystal 16th note in there was defined, even when we didn't play them. You know what I mean? It was that kind of band that was, it was, 
um, and we played really hard and we and we jammed a lot. And yeah, we had I had eight and a half years in the group uh, before I left to start the Flectones. Mm. You played in Galway. Uh, now I, I think I was too young to have seen it, but I spoke to a guy recently who uh, used to play with the Irish band The Saw Doctors, and he was uh-huh. into event management. And uh, I told him I was going to have a chat with you, and he said this was one of the seminal Irish concerts by anybody. Was when Newgrass Revival played uh, Salt Hill, so, huh. uh, sometime in the eighties. He said it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'd love yeah, to see it. Yeah, there's a funny story about that, but I, I probably shouldn't tell it. No, you should definitely tell it. <laughs> and now that you've started, you can't stop. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> One of the guys who I won't name in the band, uh, you know, liked the ladies a lot. And we were all staying in some kind of a little hotel and... Um, one of the other guys in the band found some women's undergarments and put them on the other guy's door. Anyway, it goes on and on, but uh, but he was uh, it was a, one of the great um, pranks of all time because he was calling this number that he found, and somehow he the person at the other end had the name that we had made up, and uh, it it went on for a long, long time, and then we finally wrote an Irish style song that that told the story of what had happened to him. And that's how he found out. <laughs> I feel there's but, a lot yeah, of, that was a great time. That was I, a great time. I feel there's a lot of detail being left out of that story right now. Yeah. There's a lot being left out, but <laughs> nothing actually happened. It was all, you know, bad intentions and uh, no success. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, going from New Grass, New Grass Revival to the Flectones, which was yeah. to, my, to my ear, which is very untrained, is very jazz oriented. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Highly influenced by jazz. Uh, but you wouldn't call it jazz. Like on the jazz end, they would say, oh, this is like a bluegrass thing. If we appeared at a jazz festival, if I was at a bluegrass festival, they, oh, this is a jazz thing. It, it was alien to everyone because it was music that hadn't really been put together that way before. It was, you know, people with a lot of love for jazz, but that weren't actually playing jazz there was no very little bebop or anything like that had a jazz feel i was playing the banjo with a roll and the earl scruggs kind of tone and uh but we had these incredible um musicians that were very incredible you know, very creative ground shaker guys everyone in the band was very unique and somehow we sounded good as well as being unique i mean everybody had really good team skills support skills so just because victor wooten was the hottest bass player you ever heard in your life he also happened to be one of the best support bass players just because future man was playing an instrument nobody had ever seen before or even conceived of he happened to be a great drummer that could get a pocket going that that made you want to dance and uh and howard as well a great accompanist on piano and a great melody player as well as being a guy who has reinvented the, the harmonica in profound ways so it turned out to be a band that could actually sound good, not just be unique. And that that's probably why we were able to do as well as we did, because it was a it was a cool story. Like, look at these guys. This is bizarre. There's a banjo in the lead in the lead, and there's two black guys funky as can be, and this harmonica, and the music is hard to put your fingers on. It shouldn't have succeeded at all. And in fact, I thought it was gonna last for a year or two if I was lucky before I didn't think I could keep those musicians together for very long. But, um, you know, to, and it lasted for three years with the original lineup and then Howard, the harmonica player, left. But I've still, I'm still with, with actually, they are, he came back. We're all, the original band is still together 30-something years later. But what surprised me is that um, 
we very quickly surpassed Newgrass Revival in terms of the kinds of places we were playing and the people we were opening for, you know, the theaters we were in. And Newgrass, uh, as successful as it was, we were really big on the bluegrass circuit. But, you know, if you put us in a theater, we weren't necessarily going to sell out a thousand-seat theater. We might be playing, you know, the clubs that worked, you know, the... Um, uh, occasionally there were places we could play bigger places. And I don't mean to be, you know, crowing about my success. It was just true. Um, and also there were things where um, our managements kept, uh, I was frustrated in Newgrass Revival because we were uh, living in Nashville. Our opportunity was to get a record deal on a major label and be pushed as a country music band. Um, but country didn't really want us. And we kept trying to figure out how to fit in, which meant kind of less and less banjo, less and less and less jams, less and less progressiveness. And the band was still great doing what it did, I thought, but it wasn't what I signed on for. When I joined, they were doing these 25-minute jams and odd meters, and there was a lot for me to learn and a lot for me to throw at them. But, you know, I could get one song on a record every year or two, and, that was, and I was writing like crazy. I had all this stuff burning a hole in my pocket, you know? And then I meet Victor and and Future Man and, and Howard, and they're like, hey, great. What else you got? And and I, suddenly there was a place for me to do the music that I was creating. So I was really sad to leave. But when I left, Sam said, you know what, I'm leaving too. Because I thought they could have gotten a drummer, dropped the banjo, which was always a problem with getting on the radio, and then gone to the top of the charts because they had great singing, great playing, and they were dynamic performers. And But Sam was ready to call it too. So, um, so he disbanded the band. At that point, and I felt bad about that, but I also, I didn't think I was going into something successful. I think I thought I was going off to fight a good fight that, um, you know, maybe five, seven years later, I'd be making a living. That I've been saving my money for something like that. Right. And then it went, it went really good. And we have, you know, very successful records. We got a major label, Warner Brothers, to, to push us in the jazz world. We were opening for, um, um, Bruce Hornsby, and uh, we were playing with uh, Chicago, like not country stuff. We were opening for, you know, mainstream pop things and learning a lot in, in the process. And eventually Dave Matthews Band and all of these other, other things um, came our way, and, we, and, the, and the audience just grew exponentially. And so we were really selling, I don't know, sold some million records, some, I don't know how many million at this point, but uh, certainly more than one. And so that's pretty neat. Um, uh, well, I, I don't think we sold millions of records. I think we saw. I, I think I have a nine hundred thousand sales uh, from uh, fr from Warner Brothers from the end of that, and that was, you know, twenty years ago. So I don't know. I don't really know where it all has gone since then. But you know, not bad. You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse in conversation with Bela Fleck. Uh, what's it like touring with these amazing musicians? Are they all uh, high maintenance? Are they all really nice guys? Because the interpersonal relationships in a band are a huge factor when it comes to maintaining oh, yeah. everything from travel to actually playing on stage. Yeah, well, um, I have to say, in the first years, you know, when we were an, uh, a new band, we were, of course, we were just, you know, infatuated with each other so we would just get on the tour bus and stay up all night telling each other's stories and teaching each other about music and and it was awesome um and then as the years went on um howard was dissatisfied you know he was the kind of guy who needed a lot of new stuff all the time which i understand he's that kind of musician he's got a very quick mind and so he was like 
uh, the drama for the last year was about how he needed to leave, and it was like it it became no fun. You know, it felt very neurotic and exhausting to me, and also I didn't know what we were going to do. So, um, but then, but then years, you know, then the internet came along, and there were some good and bad things about the internet. <laughs> and the good thing was that you know you could just disappear. Everybody could disappear onto their devices and and sort of not wear each other out. You know, you weren't stuck in each other's space the way we used to be. And that was kind of could kind of be good if you had, you know, you know, a lot of stuff going on and you, and you just needed some quiet or you just needed to be in your own space. We were on a tour bus. But um, I know with Howard and all of his energy, high energy, which is you know amazing and a big part of why he's a great musician, he just had something to do all the time. So he he was uh, just a lot easier. Everything was just a lot easier. Maybe it was also because it was some 10, 15 years later um, since we played together and everybody really wanted to be there. Everything got a lot easier. Um, but on the downside, in the early years, when we got to rehearsal, everyone was 100% and we would work up new music all through rehearsals. But in the modern years, uh, after the internet, it was impossible to get anybody off their phones at rehearsals, and so we pretty much sound, did our you know at sound. I'm talking about sound check because you're there to do your sound check. But for me, sound check you know is two hours, and if you've got your own monitor board and your own system, you know, a half hour into it, you're done. So I was like, okay, here's a new tune, or hey, let's write something. And so for me, the thing that happened with the Flectones uh, is as long as we had music to work on, everybody was just totally engaged. But once it got too easy for everybody. Um, people would kind of drift and then other things would become important. You know what I mean? So it was, um, it was, it was hard to get that energy going. Like there was a guy named Paul McCandless who used to come play with us. He came on tour with us for a while. And he said, this is like a workshop that you guys are like a workshop. You're constantly working up new music and work workshopping things. You know, I've never seen anybody do that in this modern times, but you used to always hear about Duke Ellington and people like that doing that. He was constantly trying, new material and that's how it was before the internet and it was just again it was just very hard to get people to focus on that or care about that when everybody could be you know scrolling engaged with their worlds yeah and they might be engaged with really important things or studying things or just curious and, and it was all new remember you know now now you can you're allowed to say okay all phones off but you weren't really allowed to say that when it first started happening do you still have that same drive, Bela, to constantly push yourself to explore, to learn new music, to learn new ways of playing music and the banjo as well, I guess? Yeah, I do. I do. I'm not happy unless I'm, uh, I've got something going, something cooking that I'm excited about that I think is some new ground of some kind or some kind of a challenge. And um, yeah, I don't know why. I, I, I honestly believe it, it comes from um, being a child of a broken family um, where, where the father left and, uh, and was never in touch. I mean, I went to find him when I was in my 40s, but I never met him um, when I was a kid. And, um, and I think that kind of gives you a low sense of self-worth on some level, which can be used to your advantage. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like I'm always trying to prove I'm worthwhile and like, and also, I have this funny thing that now that people have been saying to me, you know, oh, you're this, you're that, you're the, I don't, I'm not the best guy, but people will say that you're the best guy, or you, or, or they read an article in the New York Times, Bela Fleck has been redefining them, you know, all this kind of crap. And then I'm like, well, I better be doing that. I mean, if they're going to say that, then I better actually be doing that. I can't just like screw off. I've, you know, it's there's a self-imposed pressure to all of that, and also a pressure when people say that you're good 
to be good, to show up and actually be good, which means you have to stay on top of your game. So you have to be playing a lot. Uh, you can't run a marathon if you haven't been out outside and suddenly it's marathon day and you go out and run. If you're going to play with Chick Corea or Zakir Hussein, you know, or Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas, um, you, you, you better be playing. You better be on top of your game. These are the top people in their field. So, you know, since I get to interact with those kinds of people, there's a certain pressure to that. But I think that's really an excuse for the fact that I love it. <laughs> you know, if, if, if Abby's like, hey, can't you spend more time with the kids? I'm like, but I got to be ready for the chick tour. And I love being with the kids. Don't get me wrong. But could you put out the garbage? I got to get ready for the Zakir tour. I'm going to be playing with the top Indian musician in the world, honey. Okay. You know what I mean? But the truth is, I'm like, I'm, I'm thrilled to sit around and, and work on the banjo and try and get it together and, and practice. I like practicing. And I always tell students and, and, and anybody who listen to me that if you can learn to have a great relationship with practicing, you're going to do really well as a musician. If, if, if you look forward to that time as like, oh, this is my time with my instrument where I get it to sound the way I want it to in my lap and I'm working on things and I'm getting better and I like playing with a metronome and I like playing to tracks and uh, I like working on it and it's my time, that will, you'll do it a lot more. But if you're like, ah, I like playing, but I don't like to practice, then you're just not going to progress as much. So I, I've just decided at some point that I loved it and that it made me feel good. And so I continue to do it. And I mean, I'm not a practice-aholic. I want a project. I want something that I have to practice for. I like, okay, Chick Tour is coming. Gotta, I really need to be ready to play with the greatest jazz piano player in history. <laughs> so, I mean, I can't slough that off. So now I'm going to work on that for a month coming up into it. And when I get there, I'm going to be better than I was before. But when the tour is over, I don't play that music again. I'm going to the next thing. So it's project-based. But every project, if every project has some hurdles in it, then um, then I continue to feel like I'm in motion and not getting stuck. Do you think that somebody else who had a similar kind of background to you where, you know, a dad left and, you know, you didn't meet for such a length of time, uh, would have had a very different life path. I mean, does it speak to you as a personality? Because that's a very, you could say, almost a damaging thing to happen to a kid uh, or yeah. a traumatizing thing to happen to a kid. You managed to turn this into an incredibly positive outcome by really yeah. pouring all of that energy into music. Uh, but right. Was this a way of processing some of that pain, I guess? I don't know. To me, it was a blank. It was just a blank because there was no person to, to uh, it was like Darth Vader or something, you know. Uh, it, it was just this dark presence, but no, but no no actual reality to it. It was like smoke. So, but, but I have to say, going back to the first part of your question, a lot of people use uh, trouble in their, in their life to achieve. A lot of the, the most successful people you ever meet uh, came out of you know brought them drug themselves up by their bootstraps out bootstraps bootstraps <laughs> out of tough situations and you hear about it all the time um uh and in fact i've talked about this with uh with other musicians who've done well um you, you try to make sure your kids are happy and they have everything and they're, they're not necessarily as motivated you know because they've got everything you know but for us we weren't well we didn't have money we, we lived in a three-bedroom apartment with you know, two boys and a mother and uh, a hundred dollar a month, you know, apartment. And, um, and we, we uh, yeah, it felt like we had to make something of ourselves. So, um, at least I felt that way. So even when I attacked the banjo, I always, also always thought of it as a career, 
once I got past a certain point, I was always thinking, how can I do this the best I can? How can I make noise? How can I show up? How can I be heard? How can I get gigs? But then I also would bond with bands. I also loved really, really being in, in something. Um, and I wouldn't say I was cutthroat or anything, but um, about my interactions with musicians stealing gigs or anything like that. I wasn't like that, but I was just always, um, I wanted, I was always trying to figure out how to do whatever I was doing better. Do you have a business commercial side to you, Bela? Is it purely music and then the rest of it just happens? Or do you think, do you think on both tracks? I, I have gotten to th- like being a band leader, starting with the Flectones, I have learned to think about uh, the business side of it, and I'm I'm decent at it. You know, I, I'm I'm not going to sh- you know shoot us in the foot by bank- making dumb mistakes. Neither while I make a genius. Once in a while, I get a really good idea um, that that the managers and agents don't think of that that really works. But but it's not like I'm a genius at that kind of stuff. But I'm just I think I'm just solid and and basically intelligent enough to to not make really stupid moves and, and keep things on track. And then I'm in groups that are interesting enough that they build up their own momentum. So the, in other words, the, the, the opportunities come out of the music and, um, and we just try not to blow it. You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse in conversation with Bela Fleck. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So, I mean, if I have a if, if I have another hobby, a hobby, you know, outside of the the playing side, it's um, it's the engineering side and the editing, and which is really part of music. But normally, you would get a smart engineer to do it. But instead, I just I while my hours away, doing things like composing or, or editing takes, or you know, trying to create the perfect take by hook or by crook. You know, I, I like that. That's what you define as a hobby outside of music. Well, it's sweat equity too. You know, I keep I put my I put hours into stuff that other people wouldn't do, and I, at some points I felt bad about it, like like because um, I have my own home studio. It's about like working so hard on on stuff in the studio by hook or by crook. You know, if I want to do a hundred takes of a solo on something, I can do a hundred takes. No one's going to stop me. Um, and but the interesting thing is, I mean, we used to rehearse like in the old days. People would rehearse a whole bunch. Like you get together for months and rehearse before you brought something out. Um, but in the modern age, people don't really want to do that. So working in the studio becomes the rehearsal. And what I've discovered is, you put you put the stuff through the speakers, and you go, "Oh, well, that's not right. That's not what I thought it was." And you figure it out in the studio, and then in the process of refining it and you know, some part of it is replaying things till you get it right. Some part of it is editing something till it really works. And then you've got, oh, wow, that's really working now. And that becomes the record. And when you say record, you think recording, but it's also like the photograph of what the thing was supposed to be that you couldn't figure out how to get because you were playing and you couldn't tell the bass player 
that he was missing the chord changes because you didn't know he was missing the chord changes because you were busy playing. But if you put it on the speakers, everything becomes clear. So all of a sudden you fix everything and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it's way better than you could have played it. But the flip side of that is that um, after the band has got the record and gone and listened to it for a month or two and gone out on tour, you play it better than that. But if you hadn't done that process in the studio of really ironing out what everything really was supposed to be, um, you wouldn't be playing it like that. So I, I, I consider the, the recording an opportunity to like sculpt and grow the music into what you wanted it to be, um, less by happenstance, more, more by thought. And then once you get it, you, you can play it like that. And then you can not only that, you can improvise from there. Then you can let things open up and find their spaces. But you've learned that this needs to happen here, and this, this kind of feel for this section, it works, and that, that doesn't, and that part doesn't work, but that does. And then you're working from that. And generally, it just gets better and better. And a year later, you're playing it like you listen to the record and you go, gosh, that's not nearly as good as we're doing it now. But when you were making the record, you're like, well, that's a lot better than we can really do it. Is that fair to put out? You know what I mean? So it's that sort of like, that confusing thinking. What's, but I figure in the best, anything that makes the music better in the, in the long term has got to be good. And it's just a, an amount of work that you're willing to do you know, to get it there. You could get that same work done by rehearsing a lot, recording the rehearsals and discussing them and working, working out things that aren't working. If you're willing to do that, then you could do it that way. What's your process as a producer like? Because it's quite different than a recording artist. Yeah, well, a lot of times I'm producing things I'm playing on. So what I do is I kind of lead from my chair. Um, I, I have a, a sketch of the tune. Everybody, we practice it sitting around a couch in a circle and then everyone goes to their stations and then for instance this bluegrass record that i just is coming out in june it's a double i mean it's coming out in september it's a double album and so i had that opportunity of uh, getting everyone in the circle refining the arrangement and then going and doing takes and then um i can kind of tell you know from even though i'm in my own world of playing i can tell um kind of if someone hasn't gotten something yet and now then we'll go do some section you'll do some takes on different parts that you know i just basically i try and get everything i can get out of the musicians before they leave because they won't be coming back you know you know what i mean i'm not going to bring them back i'm going to get it uh, so that means and i want it to be live so in other words i know i'm editing but i want to edit things that really happen because to me that's where the excitement is these natural things that happen so on take one this is an amazing intro but by the time we got to the first melody, it fell apart, you know, and then take 11, God, the, from the melody all the way to the tail of it is great, but that intro just isn't nearly as good. So I'll grab that intro and pop it up there, catch the thing that really happened. Oh, take six, the chorus like really rocked. It, none of them felt like that. Well, let me grab that chorus and pop it into that other take. And pretty soon by the time I've done that, um, and, you know, and if somebody's like, man, I don't, I just can't get this solo right. Well, let's do 10 solos in a row with the whole band playing. You know, so I'll, I'll, it's rehearsal, basically. You're rehearsing and giving everyone a chance to get it. And then once everybody gets it, they all leave, and I'm sitting there with this pile of, you know, a hard drive full of stuff, and somehow I've got, then I've got to have a jigsaw puzzle mentality to put it together into what I dreamed it would be in the first place. And a lot of time, that's partly, well, this has to be this way, and then partly it's like, oh, that's cool. What happened there, unexpectedly, let's grab that and put it into the master take. And then in the end, I end up with something that is somewhere between highly thought up, you know, highly planned and highly unplanned. 
That's a great answer. <laughs> yeah, a little long, but that's 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 what I do. So that's how I like to do it when I, when I'm playing because I because I can't make the calls. It's not like well, let's pick a take and fix it. I don't like to do that. I'd rather have 20 takes and let everybody leave and then hope to God that I got it. And the only trick we have to do, like the musicians I play with generally, the, the issue is that we're going we're gonna to rush. You know, we're going to get faster the more takes we do. But we don't want to do it to a click because the click to me kills that natural interaction. So we just count off with the click. We always turn on the click and get our count off. And if I'm playing with people like Sam Bush, guys, or the Flectones, we're, we're going to speed up about the same amount by we get to the, by the time we get to the end of the song and the stuff will cut in between because okay if you start the song at 110 but by the last solo we're at 125 which might sound fine to speed up that much but then we say oh we need some more solos on that and we go do some takes and we do those solos at 110 they won't work they're going to be too slow so in, in other words i'm used to thinking this way my brain does this pretty well and i i enjoy all of it and strategizing how to get you know just great stuff out of the people while they're here. And if I'm producing someone else, like for instance, a Sierra Hall or, uh, or um, I'm trying to think who I've produced and it was Nashville bluegrass band, I might go more for takes, you know, I might. Uh, and also in the old days, things were on tape and we would do a lot less intercutting and it would be, well, we better fix that. You know, we go do some solos on another pass, whatever it takes basically. So, um, and do you get very involved with, uh, say, when you're producing for the likes of Sierra Hull, and that's a fabulous album, do you get involved in arrangements and suggestions for instrumentation yeah. and things like that? Yeah, I do. Um, I definitely meddled uh, in her songwriting process, although I didn't consider it songwriting. I considered it arranging. I, I wasn't trying to get any royalties out of it, and I didn't. But but she brought me the songs, and I would go, well, I really like your chorus, but I think maybe can we monkey around with a verse till we make it feel, a little, you know, get it a little more interesting or whatever, and uh, and I, and try not to like tell her how her music should go because it's her music, you know what I mean? So it's it's hard because I'm I can be a dominating personality and I have strong ideas and I think I'm right, um, and everybody thinks they're right. That's the nature of working with people. Everybody likes their ideas, but and but you got to make a decision. So in my case, being the producer, I mean, I think I helped her sculpt some really good songs uh, and, and, and find arrangement ideas that made them better. It was more like changing a chord here and there or, uh, or one note in the line or something. Or, um, she had really good structures, really strong raw material. But I'm really comfortable with the idea that you create raw material and then you refine it and then you record it. So, um, Yeah. I, I worked with the band uh, uh, Che Appalachia, you know, those guys, I think. Um, and that was, a, you know, that was them all coming here and us rehearsing and then playing the, through the songs with me and then me managing the rehearsals and suggesting, making suggestions, you know, well, the energy's here. Why, why let it drop? Or why don't you let it drop? Or those parts are not quite, those are clashing. You've got to work that out. And they were, they had, again, they had it very, very far along um, in, so that we could do that in the course of several days of troubleshooting the arrangements and then record it and then, you know, make sure they got it right. With me sitting out here in the studio, I could take notes. I'm not playing. So I could take notes and, uh, and, you know, and usually my notes were pretty accurate. If I thought it was happening, wow, that, that take was a great take. We should come in and listen to that. Um, I could tell them if they had gotten it or not, when we could move on to the next thing or start putting it together and fix anything that anybody didn't like. That's kind of, it's hmm, a great that's kind of, I like to do that. Yeah, I think it is. It ended up just exactly right. I think, yeah, perfectly played. They did a great job. Hmm. 
But you, it was you, fun to do it because I felt like there was something I could add to it. I could help them be the ear that none of them could be because they were in it. So that's fun to be the producer when you're doing that. And if you only need four takes, you don't need to do any more. You know, if you need more, then you need to do more. And if there's only one part that's a problem, you don't have to do the whole thing 20 times. You just need to work on that part. Maybe one guy just needs to overdub it. It's just all figuring it out. It's, it's just problem solving. You've a, a new record coming out in September. Do you want to talk about that a little? Well, sure. It, it's, uh, it's the first bluegrass-oriented record I've done since uh, uh, Bluegrass Sessions in 1999, I guess. So it's been a long, long time. There's, it's this, I consider this to be album number three of a trilogy that started with a band, uh, an album called Drive and followed by Bluegrass Sessions, and then this is more in that vein. Um, so the Drive band was Tony Rice, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Stuart Duncan, Mark Schatz, and uh, Mark O'Connor on several tracks. And that was an important record in this little world. And um, that band came back together to do uh, Bluegrass Sessions. Um, and this time we got Earl Scruggs, John Hartford, and Vassar Clements to join. And they were all like the elder generation. All of them gone now. And then um, uh, um, I was figured, well, maybe it's going to be every 10 years that I do a record like that. But as 10 years rolled around, it was just getting harder and harder to get Tony Rice because he was having all these problems with his hands. And, um, you know, I was having all of these tunes and I didn't really want to do it without him because for me, he was the magic and making the music feel a certain way not just about his solos, but about this sort of magical rhythm playing that he could do. And so the years started to stretch on. And um, uh, then uh, before the pandemic, I just kind of, for a variety of reasons, I just felt I needed to do it, even though I realized I couldn't get Tony. He, it was clear he wasn't going to be playing anymore. And I started embracing the younger guitarists. So for me, it was always that band, you know, Sam, Jerry, Stewart or Mark, Tony Rice. Mark Schatz. That was the band that could play that music, and I didn't think anyone else really could. But in all those years, you know, Chris Thaley came along, and Billy Str Billy Strings, you know, uh, came along, and Sierra Hull came along, and Molly Tuttle came along, and Michael Cleveland came along, and all of these people have come along. Um, Cody Kilby plays incredible guitar. Um, you know, um, so anyway, I decided to embrace the the, the younger generation and started to make a record with uh, with a with one of the groups, uh, with Michael Cleveland and Cody Kilby and uh, a couple of you know, other younger people, uh, Paul Coward from Nickel Creek and um, uh, Dominic Leslie on mandolin, and did a few tracks with them. And it was like, wow, this is great. Why am I not recording with Sam and Jerry again? I mean, I love this, but why? Am I? And then I was like talking to Abby, you know, all my records are one band for the whole record. That's kind of my thing because it brings cohesiveness to a broad range of music if the same people are playing it all. And she said, well, maybe this is a record where you don't do that, which really rubbed me the wrong way at the first, and then gradually realized she was absolutely right, that I didn't need to commit to one band. This was not a, not a band that was going to be a band that went out and toured. The other thing about having one band is you can't get them, then you can't do the tour. You know, So I thought, well, maybe this is right, because I want to go out and play some of this music. And if I have four different bands, then I can get anyone from the record who wants to do it and go out and do this music. It doesn't have to be the people who played the song on the record. So then I, I got Edgar and Sam and Jerry and uh, Stuart and Brian Sutton, and we did several tracks with that band. And then I got Thiele and Billy Strings together. And then I got Molly and Sierra 
together with uh, Andy Leftwood. And so pretty soon it was like 20 different people on the record, um, basically four bands with a little bit of intermingling. And I well, why don't I have Tony Trishka, you know, uh, and, and Noam play a triple banjo tune with me? That would be really cool and really go, go after it. You know what I mean? So pretty soon it turned into a double album of... Uh, and originally it was going to be pretty bluegrassy, but as time went on, I was like, well, I want to try some other stuff with this band. So it's written for bluegrass band, but some of it is is fairly uh, artsy and uh, creative that might, I might have done in a flectone situation or something else, but with this ensemble. And some of it is very much straight up the line bluegrass, like tunes I had written on the mandolin or the guitar for for that band, for that original band that I just never got to. And then a bunch of new stuff that I started to write once I got excited about it. So it's it's a big deal for me. It's going to be on BMG, and I'm taking bands out to tour starting in September. Um, and a lot of big things seem to be going to happen with it. So that's exciting. Is it, this is my bluegrass heart? Is that right? I've seen that on uh, mm-hmm. Instagram. Yeah, that looks amazing. Yeah, that's what it's going to be called, and that is named after. It's dedicated to both Chick Corea and uh, Tony Rice, who, of course, passed away. Both of them passed away this last year, not too far apart, and um, I would consider them both to be seminal influences for me and some of my favorite musicians ever to play with um, that had this magical quality that brought out more in me. But uh, Chick Corea had a record called My Spanish Heart, and he always had the Spanish side to his jazz piano playing. It was like, oh, you know, the flamenco guys loved and the Latin guys loved him. We even won a Latin Grammy together for a record we made that wasn't really a Latin record, but just because they loved Chick Corea so much. Um, and it turns out that he's not Latin guy. He's a, he's a, he's not a, a Span- Spanish or Mexican guy or South American. He's from uh, he's got an Italian background, but he just fell in love with Latin stuff and got really really good at it and did it his own way. And I it was just I was thinking about that. I was like, well, you know, that's kind of like what happened with me. I'm I'm a New York City guy, uh, you know, Eastern European roots. I don't have any connection to this music, and yet it defines me. It's who I am, I, and, and I don't do it like other people. I have my own weird way of doing it. And I thought, well, maybe that's what this is. This is like very much like what Chick was doing. So I asked him if I could use the title, um, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, of course, you know." Uh, and uh, and I decided to commit to that. Has uh, fatherhood changed you much, Bella? Um. Yeah, I think it has. I always worried that if I ever had kids, I wouldn't want to go on the road anymore. And I'm definitely much more reticent to leave, especially at their ages three, three and eight. Well, they'll both be both. That's how old they'll be in a couple of weeks. They're both their birthdays are very near to each other. And uh, and the pandemic has changed me too because I'm. I mean, I'm just a champion dishwasher. I'm an artisan dishwasher now. I spend so much more time cleaning dishes and cleaning the house than than I ever play the banjo. And um, well, my calluses are still there, thank goodness. Um, and things, different things are important. You know, um, yesterday I spent the whole day rehearsing with the, the house band for Telluride, which is a lot of those those guys, Sam Bush and Jerry, and my favorite bluegrass guys, some of my top peers. And at the end of it, I came home and I was washing dishes and you know, trying to get the kids to sleep and just running, running, running around like an idiot, like you do as a as a father of kids that age, just constantly on the move, trying to. One guy wants you to read to them. The other one's guy wants you to wrestle. You know, it's nonstop until bedtime, and then you're exhausted. And but I was happy to get home from the rehearsal. In the past, I would have been like happy to you know rehearse all night, but I was quite happy for it to end and to come back. And I love the rehearsal. So you know, you know what I mean. Those perspective has changed. 
So I'm going to have to be a lot more careful about what I do and, and how much I'm gone. Playing with Abby has really helped that balance because uh, some good percentage of when I'm gone is with the family now. I'm not gone from them. We're gone from home, but we're out. We're together. So that that helps. Um, and then I just have to balance when I'm going out. Like, for instance, Flectones have a bunch of dates to make up that got canceled. And um, um, Bluegrass, I have two of these Bluegrass tours set up. But then in between, I have dates with Abby and periods at home. And in the past, I, I, I let too much uh, time uh, go when I was gone. You know, they're all things that, you know, are hard to turn down. Again, Chip Korea wants to play, you know, uh, I want to go play. You know, it's, it's a life, once in a lifetime opportunity. Even though it's happened more than once, it's like when the, when the great ones call, these great opportunities, everybody understands that you need to do them. But it hurts. So, um, so we'll see what happens. You know, uh, part of the idea is like I'm an older dad. Part of the idea was, well, I've already done quite a bit. And if I never did anything else, nobody would be saying, you know, gosh, we need five more Bela Fleck records. Who, you know, in some level, it's very hard to, to sell what I do, even though I think I'm probably getting better at it. Uh, a lot of aspects of it now, it's like there's just so much of it out there. How many records from me do you need to have? You know what I mean? So on some, on some level, if I was going to retire, it wouldn't be a disaster. Um, but I, I still have the drive and the desire and I still want to see what's over the next hill and what I can what I can scrounge up. And I love playing with people, and I love playing in front of audiences. Although I don't feel like I'm a natural, outgoing performer type, I just like playing music and having people hear it and respond to it. But um, so, uh, there's your answer. Is there one amazing dream concert that you haven't done yet that you either a venue or or a collaboration? I mean, you've already named like the best musicians on planet Earth, so I'm wondering, yeah, is there something in the back of your mind that that uh, that you have? Well, things pop up, you know. I, I, it's not so much that I'm I mean, like I had a set a goal like that I would play with Sam Bush, you know, or, or Tony Rice and David Grisman, and that happened. And Jerry Douglas, they were all my heroes, you know. I was the young one, so and then Chick Corea was like the impossible dream, and then Zakir Hussein was another one. So now at this point, I'm not really. Um, I'm not, I kind of feel like I've gotten more than my share of those kinds of dreams, but then people turn up. Like there's this, um, Colombian harp player, um, named Edmar Castaneda, who's, who just knocks me out and we've played together a little bit and we really, we're really good to, it could be a really good thing. And it goes into that Latin direction. I really have never pursued full on and doing it with one of the really great innovative musicians of that, of that world, jazz, Latin world, um, in a duo setting. Um, it was really exciting and really interesting. Um, yes, it would be fun to play with Herbie Hancock or Pat Metheny. I mean, there's plenty of jazz guys or classical guys. Yo-Yo Ma, I still never played with him, although a lot of my friends and Abby have. You know, I can think of things, but I guess I'm more interested in you know the things that I'm generating and putting together. You know, my you know bands to play the music that I come up with. I have a an idea to do uh, a Rhapsody in Blue version where I play all the piano parts. that, And I've, I've done a lot of work on it during the pandemic. I'm excited about that. We're going to do some concerts with uh, with this bluegrass band where we, we may have like almost everyone from the record at the Ryman in Nashville. That's kind of a dream come true. And there's even some rumors about trying to do something like that um, in Carnegie Hall. Um, 
there's a promoter that wants to do that. So, you know, some things like that that I would say were like, you know, would be career highs if they happen uh, for sure. Um, but if they don't happen, I, I think I'm just fine. You know, I, I'd be happy to go play a small club with some of these musicians and, and burn it down. You know what I mean? Sometimes that's more fun. It's less pressure. Play the old town school or, or, or the, you know, the crate and salvage. Or, you know, the, you either play all those places, you know. And sometimes those are where, the you know, it's just so much fun mm -hmm. just to play for the people that are there and make every night different, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. special. Wow. Bela, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I'm blown away with the notion of my bluegrass heart. And I, I, I really hope I get to see it in one of its manifestations somewhere. It sounds like an incredible project. Well, I'm, I, I am very excited about it and um and it'll be i think it's the record is good i mean we really we've worked hard on it and then i worked hard on it when everybody was gone it's it's i feel like it's all it could be so i feel on that level that it's it's a done deal and then you know getting the bands to play it live is just uh, we're starting rehearsals next week actually and the first show isn't even till july but it, it's hard to get everybody you know to rehearse and and this music requires a lot of rehearsal. It's not like being out with your band and like developing the material over a number of years and you've got these great tunes in your back pocket. This will be a brand new band on stage that's never played together, trying to come up with a knockout show and start out of the gate with something really strong. So I'm excited about that. That looks that sounds like fun. And we've got to rehearse outside. Like we're gonna have a rehearse under under a tent in someone's backyard because we still have pandemic fears for the kids. You know, they're they're not uh, in the, they're not in the clear yet. So um, anyway, good to talk to you. Yeah, and I, well, I'm going to finish out the podcast with my favorite, one of my favorite tracks that you've ever recorded, which is from the album Music for Two with Edgar Meyer, which, I, you know, I'll be honest, I listened to it a bunch of times to get into it because it's pretty meaty stuff, but it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And the track mm -hmm. Woolly Mammoth, uh, I go oh, back yeah. to it over and over and over again. I just adore it. It's it's an incredible piece oh, of thanks. music. Thanks. Yeah. Well, that's that's Edgar like putting that classical writing in the middle of a very earthy place, you know. And I think I probably wrote the, the parts that sound like a fiddle tune or banjo tune, and he he wrote the parts that sound like a cello. But uh, he has that he had that uh, really great um, arranging and uh, orchestrating concept that really has. I think he's the guy who's changed the face of bluegrass. He's the guy that made strength in numbers into what it was for me. All the guys played together. I mean, Drive, for instance, for most of the same guys, doesn't sound like that. But Strength in Numbers had that very uh, orchestrated quality, and and he, he was the guy who hipped us all to that, that way of thinking. It's not that he came up with all of it. It's that he was the one who opened our eyes to hearing the music that way. And I think that's why Punch Brothers sounds like it does. And they're very much from the Strength in Numbers school of really uh, creating an uh, a very highly refined arrangement all the way through. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website webanjo3.com to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time inside the banjo. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.